Good morning. So uh, it's fantastic to be here. Um, I'm going to be quick with introductions. I was supposed to uh, come and share with you all several months back or a few months back. I was here in town for a conference that they had at uh, Grace Church. And uh, my wife and I were uh, at the tail end of uh, an adoption process. And uh, sure enough, uh, this was our second adoption. Some adoptions go well. Uh, this one was just, you know, Murphy's Law. It was just like anything that could go wrong would go wrong. And uh, it, I, I, it was like I just sensed it. Seven weeks prior to her due date, I landed. My wife texted me and said, she's in labor. And, I mean, I was the keynote speaker at the event. So I was like, is she really in labor? <laughs> and uh, so we kind of played around. She said, just, you know, hold off, hold off. So long, long story short, as I, I spoke that evening, uh, hopped in a car and drove all night long to Kansas City and then traded cars and drove to Wichita. I think it took me like 12 hours. Um, that's 12 energy drinks. Um, no, just kidding. I didn't drink that many. It was several, but it wasn't 12. And uh, I'm definitely not 20 anymore. Not that that was the first time I realized that, but it was... Uh, and, and, and then she did not go in labor, thankfully, because she would have been very premature. Um, but several weeks later, she did. And uh, so we have uh, Ruby Joy is our, our, our fifth uh, in our family, three biological and then two adopted. And, and uh, she's healthy and she's well. And so um, I apologize that I had to cancel, but I'm sure you understand. But I'm glad to be back. And so let's go ahead and, uh, and just dive right in. The, uh, oh, whoops. We thought we had it. Uh, let's see here. Does it do any better? I know there's some little trick. I was about to declare the wisdom of buying a Mac Vindicated, <laughs> but maybe not. Well, if we may we may just go with that because that's better than nothing. Does that annoy anybody? I'm on the one on the right. Let's see what happens. Yeah, let's do that. That works. So I, uh, I tend to be a big picture guy. And the uh, purpose of this message is to really look at the issue, uh, the, the, the broader biblical basis for how we've arrived where we are today. I'm actually from Boston, by the way. Uh, so the events of... Uh, Somebody clapping for Boston? <laughs> Typical rude Bostonian. Um, I'm just kidding. Just joking. But uh, yeah, I grew up South Shore, Massachusetts, South Boston. And uh, my, my niece was actually working at the, um, at the marathon. She was actually pretty close to everything. Kind of ran home and then found out that she um, may have gone to school with one of the guys. And, you know, just... Um, Everybody was sending me texts like, is your family fine? I'm like, yeah, my family aren't really big marathoners. <laughs> uh, I was like, we're good. Um, but then I found out my niece was actually there. But So to, to try to, uh, oh, here comes a geek. <laughs> <laughs> you just step over there for a moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, pray, praise God for guys that actually know what they're doing. Um, so, uh, in any case, to try to understand the biblical story, 
What's the biblical basis? How did we arrive where we are today? All of the events in the Middle East, the events that are pressing themselves on us every day, how did we arrive here? And so that's really the purpose of this, is to go back to the beginning and, uh, and to try to get a better feel for it. And, uh, and so as many of you know also, uh, actually I'll just tell this story since, no, it's all right, go ahead. Um, I'll tell the story because it's actually really neat and I'm, I'm super blessed to be here in my own personal journey. Uh, I came to faith 23 years ago, a little, uh, uh, a little just complete hoodlum from South Boston. Um, I mean, it's amazing that I'm not brain damaged, dead, or in prison, uh, or in a, you know, psych ward. I mean, I was addicted to huffing gasoline at age 11. Um, so I was, I was going to turn that into a joke, like, you have no idea who you just gave the microphone to. At any moment, this thing could just go bad. Um, and, uh, see? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Um, but, uh, so the Lord rescued me, and, you know, we were talking over the DTN conference of what it means to be unnatural branches. I'm just a classic example. Here's a kid at age 11 who is... Uh, an evangelist, getting all the neighborhood kids addicted to huffing gas, you know, the mothers loved me, and, um, and, and proceeded down that path for the next several years, and all of a sudden, in the midst of it, the Lord reveals himself to me, and I come to faith and get saved, and then lead a whole bunch of people to the Lord, that shouldn't have been what happened. That's nothing other than the grace of God. You have the Jewish people, you know, they have the patriarchs and the history and the covenants and all of this, and they're hardened. And then he brings someone like me in. It's completely unnatural, and my story is, uh, is just a testimony to the, to the grace of God. But shortly after uh, coming to faith, there was a missionary um, from Kazakhstan that came to the church uh, that I was attending and told us about the 1040 window, and so I... Uh, quickly determined that since the the Muslim world in particular was that segment of the world that most needed the gospel, I said, well, I'm going to give my life to Muslims. And uh, it was pretty much that simple. And so I had determined to become an overseas foreign missionary. And so in my process, what I wanted was uh, first to go to a school where I could really get the Holy Spirit, if you will. And so uh, in my own particular plans, I was going to go to uh, Kansas City for two years at the time, Sam Storms, you know, he had a bunch of guys that had sort of come out of very mainstream uh, churches that were trying to pursue the Holy Spirit in a, in a biblically responsible way. Um, so I was going to do that for two years and then come up to Bethany College of Missions, and that was my plan, and I had, you know, the brochures, and I would look through them, and I was all excited. Uh, and then in the midst of that, uh, the Lord interrupted my plan, spent a good, uh, better part of 1994 in Israel, Egypt and the Middle East, and, uh, and then I felt like he wanted me to go back and, and pursue a degree in engineering, and then for the next several years, he, you know, broke me, crushed me, and, uh, and helped me to realize just what a, an absolute um, immature, foolish, uh, you know, moron uh, that I, selfish moron that I am. And so, you know, the, the, the dream, the five-year plan of eventually coming to Bethany, of course, was um, by the Lord uh, crushed, and so it's just neat, 20 years later, that I'm actually here to share and just get to be part uh, of this with you all. And uh, still, although I have not lived overseas as a missionary to Muslims, um, I'm still pursuing that initial uh, deposit that the Lord placed in my heart and 
by the grace of God, I can convey the Lord's heart for Muslims today that some of you would uh, catch a bit of that. So I'm grateful to be here. So here's, uh, again, just a broad overview uh, from a biblical perspective. This is not entirely technically accurate, but it's, it's loosely accurate. You have Father Abraham, and then he has Isaac and his child uh, Jacob, which became Israel. And of course, out of the womb of the nation of Israel, we had uh, Yeshua or Jesus that did uh, eventually give birth to Christianity. People say, Jesus did not give birth. Yes, he did. He did. Uh, you know, it says, if you suffer for the name of being a Christian, then, you know, essentially you should, be, you should rejoice in that. Uh, the word Christian is not a bad uh, term. It's actually biblical. On the other side, you have Ishmael, who was the brother of Isaac, again, a son of Abraham. Now, Esau was not Ishmael's uh, son, uh, but on that side of the family, if you will, eventually you had uh, an Arab man named Muhammad that gave birth to Islam. And so here you have the, the world's two largest uh, religions that at the end of the age, in many ways, are, are doing this. And uh, we see examples of it all around us, and uh, I believe that in the last days, the primary vessel that, or the primary vehicle that the Lord will use to chastise Israel, the church, and the nations will be uh, Islam. It's not the only uh, rod of chastisement, but it's the primary one, and uh, I believe that wholeheartedly, and so it's essential that we understand that. Uh, I'm convinced that there's a dynamic among people that we're far more apt to believe things that are crazy than we are to believe that which is right in front of us, and so as this end time of found myself uh, morphed into this uh, end-time guru of some sorts. You know, I get all emails constantly, and, 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 and you've, you, know, you just get the end-time crowd that's constantly wanting to engage you. And it's like, you know, uh, Joel, it, it's really silly that you think Islam is going to play a relevant role in the end times. Everybody knows that it's Pope Francis and his group that we need to be looking out for, um, or the UFOs. Um, or, you know, you name it. It's just like, it's right in front of us. Like, like, like the, everybody knows that the UFO thing is what is the real issue. Islam, that's crazy. Where are you getting this stuff? It's just like, you know, uh, the, the whole Boston bomber thing, well, that was just a false flag event. Everybody knows it was just carried out by the New World Order. Islam's really not an issue. You're like, so the whole Middle East? Is that a false flag event? Is that all, you know, it's just strange and and of course the whole biblical story so okay here we begin genesis 16 sorry for my little my little rants stop emailing me <laughs> we begin with the story of sarai and abram before their names had been changed to sarah and abraham now sarai abram's wife had borne him no children but she had an egyptian maidservant named hagar so she says to abram so now of course a little bit of backstory. The Lord had promised to them that He would give them a child, and through that child, through that seed, would uh, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It would be through that child. Now His promise was long in coming, right? Eventually, it comes around, doesn't it? Twenty years later, you know, it just the Lord sort of brings me here to Bethany. I get to see the campus. I'm like, this is the thing that I used to look at the brochure, and but it's twenty years later. He had to kill me first, and uh, this is this is always the way it. It works, but so they're way back here. They're early in the process, and they're incredibly uh, impatient, so they start looking at Hagar as uh, plan B. 
So she says to Abram, now, this is the story, by the way, of the snowballing effect of bad choices, bad decisions, and sinful uh, decisions, and, and not trusting in the promises of God. That's really what this whole story is about. Here's bad idea number one. The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Bad choice number two. Abram agreed <laughs> to what Sarah said. Sarai said. So after Abram had lived, been living in Canaan ten years, she, Sarai, took, uh, his wife, took the Egyptian maidservant Hagar to, be, to her husband to be his wife. Now, I would just pay attention to the word wife. She gave, him to, she gave her to Abram to be his wife. Okay, so it starts out, she's going to be your wife. Genesis 16, 4 through 6, he slept with Hagar. So not only did he agree, he carried it out, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, now this is the beginning, the, the fallout of bad choices. She begins to despise her mistress. So Sarai says to Abram, you are responsible for all the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now look what's happening. Now that she's pregnant, she's treating me bad. May the Lord judge between you and me, you scumbag. <laughs> now, by the way, I want to be clear. I agree with Sarai. This was, he was supposed to be a man. He didn't man up. He, he, what he should have said was, Sarai, what are you talking about? Hagar? I don't even like Hagar. But uh, instead, he, uh, he agreed, so he, he failed in his, uh, his role as a man. That's a little side lesson right there, but um, you all know it. So then Abram, the responsible guy that he is, he says, your servant is in your hands, do whatever you want to, or whatever you think is best. So Sarai mistreats her. Incredible leadership right there. Genesis 16, 7 through 10. Now, uh, so... Hagar is abused, and, and Sarai essentially kicks her out of the camp. The angel of the Lord finds Hagar near the spring that is in the desert by the road to Shur. And he says, Hagar, what's, what's the deal? Um, and she says, I'm running away from Sarai. And then the angel of the Lord says, go back to your mistress and, su and submit to her. The angel added, listen, I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to increase your descendants so that they will become too numerous to count. So he gives her this, this promise. And this, this is the prophetic uh, key that I want you all to take note of, and we're going to come back to it. But the Lord has only named before their birth a handful of people throughout Scripture. There's only a few. And Ishmael is one, and that's significant. When the Lord names somebody, he doesn't just say, I'm going to choose, um, you know, what's a really cool name now? Blade. I think Blade sounds cool. You know, the Lord, it's not just like, I like the, the, the sound of it. It has meaning. The Lord named Ishmael. Um, there's no blades in here, are there? Um, I apologize if so. Uh, the angel of the Lord says to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, which means the Lord hears. And that name, by the way, is the very definition. It, it defines the God that we serve. He's the God that hears. He's the God that sees. And we're going to contrast that with the God of Islam and the gods of the earth uh, that neither see nor hear. For the Lord has heard your misery. And again, this is key. Uh, to every agnostic, to every atheist out there, they wonder, I don't know if God's real. There is a personal God 
that when the overwhelming majority of humanity is in misery at some time or another, the Lord hears your misery. There's a personal God that actually reveals himself as a personal being that cares, that actually has emotions and hears our pain and our suffering and he draws near. What nation is there that has a God that draws so near that gives us all these decrees and commandments and so forth? From the very beginning of the Scriptures, the Lord has revealed Himself as the one that draws near. And then it, and then it says this, speaking of Ishmael, there's this prophecy. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Samuel Huntington, uh, Harvard scholar, uh, wrote the book The Clash of Civilizations. Some years back, he uh, has this famous line in his book, and he's talking about Islam, and he says, all of Islam's borders are bloody, and so are all of its innards. Uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing it, but essentially, his hand is against everyone and against all of his brothers. And what the Muslims always do right here, it's funny, they're like, oh, the Jews put this here. You know, the Jews inserted this. They had to put this little slam on us. You know, the Lord didn't inspire this. And it's just like, guys, I hate to say it, but let's just call a spade a spade. I mean, you know, for the past, I was going to make a joke about how, I mean, let's, how many wild donkeys uh, in the room. But, uh, in any, I mean, you know, for the past, whatever, 10 years in Iraq, the news is what they say, sectarian violence, Muslim on Muslim, Shia on Sunni, Sunni on Shia uh, violence. His hand has always been against us, but this the History of Islam from the very beginning. It has been a divided entity with Muslims killing one another and, uh, and eventually clashing with their neighbors as well. 13 through 16, so the Lord gives Ishmael the name and then she says, you're the God that sees me. She, she gets a bit of a revelation of who this God is. And then she even says, I've seen the one that sees me. She actually saw God in the angel of the Lord. And that's for the Jewish people that say, God would never become something manifest physically that we could actually tangibly see and experience. That's crazy talk. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. She's 86. Just take note of the age. So she's 86 when they're back here, when they take uh, things into their own hands. The Lord's promises are long in coming. And so now we're skipping forward to chapter 21. A few chapters later, verse 1 through 7. Finally, many years later, it's actually uh, 14 years later, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. So now it's Sarah and Abraham. As he said, he's always faithful. He's just not always on our time uh, schedule. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. She became pregnant. She bore Abraham a son in his old age. He gives the child the name Isaac. When he's eight days old, Abraham circumcised him. As God commanded him, he's 100 years old. So Ishmael's 14 when Isaac is finally born. So 14 years prior to the fulfillment of his promise, they took things into their own hands. It's in, but yet, they were impatient back then. 14 years later is uh, when the Lord actually determined that it would be done. Um, now, I, uh, as I said, have adopted two children now. Uh, this is our fifth. And um, with every child... Uh, it, after the first one in particular, it's like, this one's going to be in the crib. This one's going to sleep in the crib. And, uh, and it, it, for those of you that had kids, you can relate. And then everyone ends up in the bed. And, um, you know, and again, it's just, 
Uh, I'm not complaining in the least bit. It's a lot easier for my wife uh, just to, you know, kind of feed him rather than having to get up because ultimately the wife usually bears the brunt uh, of that, uh, particularly <laughs> if you're married to me. Um, and, uh, and so I, I enjoy it, you know. You, you look over and there's just, uh, you know, this beautiful little, little lamb, just this precious little thing in your bed, but it's, it's, uh, it's in between my wife and I, and so, you know, I could tell you all kinds of stories, like Ellie was our third daughter, we thought that was going to be our last child, so I think she really kind of lingered uh, longer than others, and um, as she grew from this little lamb to like, okay, she's starting to get a little reach, um, she developed this fantastic axe kick. Like, in her sleep, she would just do that. And um, so all, all this to say is the child grew and was weaned, and, um, and I fully identify with um, Father Abraham, who held a great feast <laughs> on the day that the child was weaned. But Sarah saw the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. Okay, so now here's the snowball effect of sin. Now the 14-year-old is, I don't know if mocking is an accurate word there. Uh, the 14-year-old is, is, because there's other references in the scripture that seem to say that it was more than just mocking. It was actual persecution. Um, but he's mocking, and so she says to Abraham, now remember what, Hagar was before, she's going to be your wife. Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. You see where it's arrived? Begins like, hey, I've got a great idea. I've got a great idea. A little lesson there, I'll just tell you. Um, side note. I just said idea. I've lost my Boston accent. I've learned how to say car hard, far, but what happens is that then I add R's where they don't belong. <laughs> so when Kennedy said Cuber, that's not a Boston accent. That's actually like an overcompensated non-Boston accent. It's just a little lesson in, in accents. So occasionally it, you'll, you'll hear that. So uh, yeah, you will not share, he will not share. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because, why? Why was he upset? It concerned his son, Ishmael. Abraham loved Ishmael. It was his boy. But God says to him, now listen, don't be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And here's the point. From a, um, a critical perspective, it's easy to look at the story and go, you know, the Lord was awfully harsh here. But the fact of the matter is, is that from the beginning, after the fall, the Lord has had a very specific plan to redeem all of creation. And it's not just, he hasn't just come to send his son to save our souls. Literally all of creation is groaning up until this day. All of creation is burning and groaning and suffering pains, like labor pains, waiting for the day when all of creation will be redeemed and glorified and beautified and restored to what it was originally intended to be. He didn't just come to save our souls. He came to resurrect flesh 
to resurrect our bodies, to redeem our bodies. And there's going to be a physical, earthly kingdom here, and we get to be part of it. We get to do stuff. Okay? That's the biblical story. It's about the resurrection. And so the Lord says, listen, I have a plan, and it's specifically through you, Abraham, and then through Isaac, and ultimately, as I said, you're going to, I'm going to, he's going to, the Lord's going to turn Jacob into Israel, and through that holy nation, bring forth Jesus. And this is His plan. And Abraham, you didn't listen to me. You messed this up. And I know it's terrible. And he says, but listen to what Sarah tells you. You blew this thing. This is your sin. You can't put this on me. And he says, but I'm going to take care of the son. I'm going to watch after him. So early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, puts it on her shoulders, and he sends her off with the boy. She went her way and she wanders in the desert. And uh, it's not a part of the world that you want to just be wandering around. I, uh, when I was down in Elat, which is, um, sometimes they call it Sodom by the Sea, it's the s- city there on the southern edge of Israel on the border of Egypt and Jordan. I, uh, 22, or, uh, you know, I was 22, I got the bright idea that I saw this mountain, and they're really little rocky hills, and I said, I'm going to go out on that mountain and watch the sunset. And uh, I thought that would be cool. So I wandered out of the city and didn't realize that there was numerous mountains in between that mountain that you just couldn't see. It was like much further than I thought. So I, I kind of worked my way out there and sat on the, and watched the sun go down and then started walking back. And I was lost like within minutes. And, uh, and you could see the, the lights of the city, but there, you know, I was just wa- I was wandering out there for hours, not just wandering, but just working my way around these mountains trying to get there and after like the first hour they have these little I don't know what they call them but they're like dingoes like these little dogs there was like six or seven of them you know about just six feet off just waiting he's gonna collapse sooner or later <laughs> I'm like I'm gonna get eaten by Israeli chihuahuas <laughs> everyone's gonna be like I knew that guy was dumb <laughs> and then and then even worse and that's and that's at night you know and I was like out of water I was like and then uh, I, at one point, this is, uh, just to reiterate how dumb I am, there was a, this little fence, and I was like, oh, a little, just like a wire. So, you know, I just stepped on it, and I'm wandering around for a while. And then I, I step back over it, and there's a little sign, and I look, and it's a minefield. <laughs> so I was right on the border. I was just like wandering through minefield. <laughs> Apparently, they're not fairly sparsely populated minefields, but um, eventually I made it back. But in the heat of the sun, you know, down there, 115 degrees uh, is, is roughly what it equated to in Fahrenheit. I mean, you know, she's wandering around in the desert with her little 14-year-old uh, son, and the water and the skin is gone. She puts the boy under some bushes, and then she leaves, and she wanders off. She, she goes about a bow shot away, and she says, I can't watch the boy die. So he's, he's actually to the point where he's, he's about to die. She begins to sob. She begins to weep. Now here's the first deposit of that prophetic name that the Lord called Ishmael. God heard the cry of Ishmael. He heard the boy crying. And the angel of God calls to Hagar from heaven, and he says to her, Hagar, what's the matter? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift him up and take him by the hand. I told you I will make him into a great nation. I already spoke that, and here you are sobbing. 
understandably so. But the Lord had made a promise, and he's always, always faithful to keep his promises, always. God opens her eyes, and she sees a well. She fills the skin, she gives it to the boy, he drinks, and then it just sort of just skips forward. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. He grew strong, he became a hunter. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother brought him a wife from Egypt. So it just kind of just... It, it concentrates on this period of his life, but then all of a sudden it just skips forward. It's like the Lord promised these things and all is well. Now here's the point that I want to uh, get to, to try to help us to see Muslims, through, m- Muslims today through the eyes of the Father. Uh, it's very easy to look to Muslims today, particularly if you're not a, a, a very missionally-minded individual, and I know this church is, is very missional, but just in general to be here in the States and to watch things in the news, it's easy to become fearful or angry. Uh, but to lose a proper uh, godly perspective, a, a divine perspective on these things. And so by the grace of God, uh, we can see a, a touch of the Father's heart in the story. Uh, But oftentimes we read stories like this, particularly in the Old Testament, and they're kind of just like, you know, Noah's Ark. They're kind of just like Bible stories, you know, Sunday school stories that we learn as kids. But they don't, you know, they're almost, they're real, but they're just there as a lesson, but they're not really real. But the fact of the matter is this is a real story that happened to a real little boy. There was a real little boy named Ishmael, and this was his life. It's recorded for us to read about, but he experienced the trauma of that event, that reality. And so this little kid, 14 years old, one day he has a family. He's got a mother and a father, everything's well. His, you know, in his little world, he's got an inheritance. He had a dad that loved him. Abraham loved his son. And you know, there's tons of details that it doesn't give us, but he had all of these things. And in one day, he's in the desert, dehydrated. His father has kicked him out. He's no longer part of the family. His father just essentially divorced his mother, sent them out in the desert, and he's sitting there dying, and then his mother abandons him. And he's sitting there like, what just happened? Little 14-year-old kid. Meanwhile, Isaac, this little baby, is back in the camp, and from his perspective, that little baby just stole his life. He just usurped his whole life. And there's that, that... the fear and the trauma and the bitterness and all the things that I guarantee he was experiencing and it didn't just take place in an hour. You know, this might have been something that took place over a series of days to the point where he was uh, at that place of near death. And so then here is just the most bizarre reality and, and I, don't, uh, I don't pretend to understand how these things work. I know there's a lot that has been written on the subject of blessing your children passing on the Father's blessing. But 2,600 years later, 2,600 years later, a direct descendant of Ishmael named Muhammad, he he was part of the, the pagan tribes of his region, would take a particular month every year and they would devote that to prayer and fasting and devotion to their pagan gods. And he's in a cave fasting. And while he's in the cave, this... This presence, this spiritual presence comes on him, this very dark spiritual presence, and it's crushing the life out of him to where, according to Islamic accounts, 
Muhammad said he believed he was about to die. He couldn't breathe. He was terrified. He believed that he was demon-possessed. And this thing demands of him in Arabic. It says, Ikra, recite. And it's a reference to essentially these ecstatic Arabic poets that would allow spirits to channel through them, and they would essentially rap in the spirit. They would recite Arabic poetry in the spirit. And he goes, I'm not one of these ecstatic poets. I can't, Ikra, I don't know how to recite. And it comes on him again three times. It's almost crushing the life out of him. And finally, the words of the Quran, the first words of the Quran begin to flow forward from his lips. That's the birth of Islam. So here's this direct physical descendant of Ishmael. 2,600 years later, he births a new religion into the earth through this very dark spiritual experience. And here are some of the foundational decrees of Islam. And just relate this to the experience of Ishmael. And you tell me if this is just mere coincidence. God is not a father. This is a central element of Islam. God is not a father. When you call God a father, you're relating the Almighty to something that is on earth, to something that is, is, is uh, earthly, is human. You're lowering God. How dare you lower the Almighty? Don't liken Him to anything on earth. He's, he's beyond all of this. And it's actually, we'll look at some of the passages from the Quran. God has no son. This is, the, this is the absolute foundation of everything that we believe. God does have a son. And Islam specifically goes after that doctrine that we hold so central, so dear, and as we always have from the very beginning, the, the very self-revelation of God, of who He is in Jesus. That's how He's chosen to reveal Himself to mankind. And then Islam declares, God has no son. And it takes us on polemically. It actually directly confronts us. It's not just another religion that just believes differently. It actually names the things that we hold as sacred. And it says blasphemy to those things. And then finally, it actually teaches that Ishmael, not Isaac, is the true heir of Abraham. And that the Jews, once again, have changed the Scriptures and they've twisted this stuff around and they've manipulated it because the Jews are, um, you know, wily, uh, devious, and, and that's what they do. So from a spiritual perspective, uh, if we're looking at it from a, a prophetic spiritual perspective, my uh, definition of Islam is that it is the broken and bitter cry of Ishmael, the rejected, the fatherless, the orphan. And, and that bitter spirit has literally been memorialized, creedalized, canonized into a book, into a religion called Islam. And it's the fastest growing religion in the earth right now, primarily because of birth rates. And it is, in fact, the greatest anti-Christ. It's the greatest anti-Zionist, the greatest anti-Semitic, the greatest anti-Yahwistic, the greatest anti-Christic, and the greatest anti-Christ religion that the world has ever known. Okay? I know those are some strong statements to just make and move on. 1 John 2, verse 22 and 23. The Bible tells us all sorts of things about the Antichrist. It's not irrelevant material. He wants us to be aware. He doesn't want us focused on it, but he does want us to be aware of it. And he tells us about the geography from which the Antichrist would come. He tells us about the, the spirit of the Antichrist, his arrogant spirit. Uh, just numerous things about his wars, some of the specifics of those things, but it also gives us some pretty clear theological uh, understanding of, of the belief system of the Antichrist. 
And here, in 1 John 2.22, most would say that he was originally addressing Gnosticism in the first century. I believe John was directly quoting a passage in Daniel uh, 11, like 43 in there. Uh, I won't detail that too much, but if you're interested, you can look that up uh, in a bit more detail. Uh, But John says, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, people that understand Islam will say, but wait a minute, Islam affirms that Jesus is the Messiah. And the fact of the matter is, they do in name only. But they reject everything from the biblical definition. And it says, he denies the Father and the Son. I'm going to skip forward here. Um, There are a handful of passages throughout the scriptures that refer to this. They deny the Father and the Son. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? They, they go to war, essentially, against Yahweh and his Messiah, the Father and the Son. John 16, 2, the days are coming, in fact, when those who kill you will do so, believing that they're offering God a service. They do these things because they don't know the Father. They don't know me. This, this is the twofold, uh, it, it defines the spirit of the Antichrist, denies the Father, denies the Son. I have uh, a handful of passages here from the Quran. Surah 1, 12, 1 through 4, say he is Allah, the one, Allah, the eternally besought of all. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten. He is not a father, he is not a son. And in him there's none comparable. Denies the sonship of Christ. If you believe that God has a son, you've uttered a gross blasphemy. You are the most disgusting blasphemers imaginable because you believe what you believe. You're Christians. You're blasphemers according to the Quran. The Christians call Christ the Son of Allah. We could go through, there's a handful of such passages, uh, reading them in a church, it's almost like spiritual uh, pornography. It's, it's, um, it's satanic, but sometimes it's good to realize how confrontational Islam really is. I'll just tell this story real briefly, uh, and we'll move toward wrapping it up. Um, being an adoptive father, Um, I've thought about these things a lot. This is what I call a tale of two fathers. Very simple story, and I always share this with Muslims. And actually, I'll tell you this too, because I've thought about it, and I've kind of even changed it. But here's the way I've always always told it. You've got one dad that comes home from work, and he's exhausted. And uh, his kids say, as soon as he comes in, they're like, Daddy, you know, will you play with me? And, um, you know, the two older ones are doing homework, and the little one's like, Daddy, will you play with me? And, and he's, you know, he's tired. He, he just wants to, you know, get a bite to eat and take a nap, whatever. And he's like, okay, what do you want to play? And uh, so in my case, it's, oh, you know, dolls. <laughs> and I'm like, sure. That's, you know, like I was just waiting all day to play with dolls. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, the dad gets down on the carpet, and he's there, and, you know, and you can't just do it for five minutes and be like, okay, you had your turn. Um, you know, you've got to spend some time with them, and, and so, you know, you're, next thing you know, you're into this thing. And, um, you know, and you're, you know, you're all like, oh, like, where did you get those pants? She's like, thank you, I made them. And then my middle daughter, like, she makes stuff. Like, I kid you not, like, I, I, I can't show you a picture. She makes stuff out of duct tape. She's like, I made them myself. I'm like, holy mackerel, you did. You made them out of duct tape. That's crazy. Um, 
so, you know, you do all this and, you know, you just make a fool out of yourself. And, uh, you know, like the last thing you want is like that to appear on YouTube. Um, but, but, but ultimately, the thing of it is, is, and this is the point, is dads don't care. Dads don't care if they're complete idiots. And this is what happens when you become a parent. All dignity goes out the window. You know, you're like, is that vomit? When it's your own. Is all right, just, you know, you like, you go into a grocery store, you're like, honey, there's vomit on your back. <laughs> you know, what, whatever. Um, just, you know, like, I don't care. But, so, you know, this is what a father does, is he gets down on the carpet with his kids. Now, the other dad comes home, and his kids say, Daddy, will you play with me? And he's like, far be it from, what are you talking about? You know, you, what, you want, me to, you want me to play with dolls? Don't you know who I am? I'm a CEO. You know, t- tell your brothers and sisters to play with you. And, uh, and, and essentially, this is the God of Islam. It's all about preserving his greatness, preserving how great and how majestic and how all of these things that he is. And humility is not a trait that the God of Islam knows, nor is love, nor is uh, relating to us as children. This is the essence of who God is. In fact, the very incarnation of Christ is the epitome of what I'm talking about. God humiliated Himself. He humbled Himself. And He embraced death on a cross. Why? Because He loves His kids. It's that simple. That is the definition of who the God that we serve is. And the God of Islam is an insecure, pathetic demon that is unworthy of any worship, never mind acknowledgement, in any way, shape, or form. That's how I used to tell the story. <clears throat> Since becoming an adoptive father, now that I, I, I look at my son, Levi, uh, his father at age 25 already had eight kids, none of which he has anything to do with. He's just getting women pregnant and moving on and putting another notch on his belt. So on one hand, you have the dad that comes home and loves his children as much as he can. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of nights where I'm like, no. I don't want to create a false image. Um, and then there's the, go- there's the other guy over here. He doesn't even come home. That's the God of Islam. He doesn't even show up. I mean, I'm giving him more credit than he deserves by even describing him as a father. And then he tells, not only will he not show up, he won't call us children, and then he says, you are my slaves. And there's the Scripture that says, if Christ has not been resurrected, if He hasn't been raised, then we of all people are to be pitied. But the fact of the matter is, Christ has been raised. And so when we give our lives for the Gospel, we're confident that on the day of the Lord, He's going to raise us up and this fellow's wife gets to see her husband and hug him again, physically, in the flesh. The fact of the matter is, folks, Muslims are the people of all the earth to be pitied because they're serving a terrible God who calls them slaves. And we are the stewards of this message, of this God. We, ha- we are the ones that proclaim the message, the good news of this God that loves us, that wants to make us His children. Amen? Don't ever feel bad for when they come at you and they're like, you believe in the Trinity? That's crazy. You go, you believe in what? <clears throat> Islam forbids adoption. Is that not 
equally uh, prophetic. All right. The Lord is calling his children to rescue orphans of the earth. If I was to come up here with all pictures of cute little kids, everybody's on board. When I come up here with pictures of guys that look kind of like me, <laughs> it's not quite as like, yeah, I'm signing up. What are you laughing at? <laughs> um, but here's the point, guys, is it's easy to get everybody on board for women that are in human trafficking, innocent victims, little lambs. The Lord looks at Muslims today as that lost, abandoned, orphaned little boy. And deep in the heart of all Muslims, that's what's there. They're longing for a God that they can connect with, and he doesn't. He's not there. He's the God that is not there. We need to see Muslims throughout the earth as the spiritual orphans of the earth. And in the last days, the Lord is calling the fathers to turn their hearts to the children and the children of the fathers, etc., releasing that spirit of Elijah in the earth, that we would be a people that would embrace the orphans in the natural and in the spiritual. He wants us to go after them. Muslims are some of the most hungry people in the earth. Go down to the local gas station and tell somebody about Jesus, the Bible, and they're going to just shut you off in two seconds. Go tell, just go meet some Muslim and say, hi, I'm Joel. I believe the Bible is the word of God. Instant conversation. They will engage you. They love to talk about these things. They are some of the most God-hungry people in the earth. Don't be afraid of them. Don't look at them through natural eyes. Go after them. There's a great harvest taking place throughout the Islamic world today, and he wants us to be part of it. Um, I'll just introduce you real briefly. Here's, here's Levi, my uh, first adopted son. The name Levi means to join together. He is the coolest little kid you can imagine. And uh, he's incredibly handsome, strong, and all sorts of things that I did not pass on to him, <laughs> obviously. He's, his, his dad, his birth father was six foot four. Like, I've got like about three years before <laughs> I need to establish my authority. Here's Ruby. She's four months old. This was the day I told her there's Santa Claus is not real. <laughs> I was like, I just want to get this out there. You know, how, you know how when they're little and they're kind of like hungry, they're like these little baby birds. They're just like, like I just caught her at the right moment, but it's a great picture. Um, introduce you to my wife. So now you know who to pray for. I, um, I tweeted, uh, not tweet, I um, Instagrammed this picture, and then I wrote under it, my wife is so lazy. <laughs> she, she told me to say it, actually. But um, so there they all are. And, I'm, and, and then actually what happened just after this picture is I bit and hit both of the kids because I wanted room. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I was like, why is there no room for me? So, okay, so there's my family. Thank you for, thank you for listening. Uh, I'm going to end it with prayer. Father, I believe that uh, the story that you've given us in the scripture is instructive, and uh, we believe that you named Ishmael, God hears for a reason. I believe that in the last days, that name, that prophetic declaration will come to fruition, and that you will bring in a great harvest among 
uh, even out of the religion that will be used by Satan to fulfill the prophecies of the Antichrist, even out of that you'll call forward a great harvest and a powerful and mighty remnant. We ask that you would give us the grace to hear what you're saying to the churches in these last days, that you would give us the ability to hear your voice, that you would give us the ability to see with your eyes, and that we as intercessors and as missionaries would cry out and say, Father, hear the cry of Ishmael throughout the earth, 1.6 billion every day, bowing down, crying out to the God that they can't even know. Hear the cry of those that are sincere. You said that if we knocked, the door would be open. Respond to them, even though they cry out to the God they don't know. You hear their cry, and we thank you for what you're doing. We know that the fields are white unto harvest. We ask that you would raise up laborers for that harvest, that you would send us into the, into the fields. We thank you for your heart. We thank you that you called us and saved us, though we didn't deserve it by your grace. And we ask that you would send us to save some from the fire and to be uh, ambassadors of your goodness, declaring who you are, declaring the day of the Lord and the beauty of your Son in the age to come. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.